You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Last week we began our study of the book of James, who is a half-brother to the Lord Jesus himself. He was the son of Mary and Joseph, who was not a follower of Christ when Christ lived, had not come to know Jesus uh, as a personal Savior, as the Messiah, until after the resurrection. And then we see James rise to this place of prominence in the Jerusalem church as an elder in the church. We began to look at his letter last week. He's writing primarily to a Jewish population who were Jewish, so therefore they were being ostracized by Gentiles. But they were also Christians, so they were being ostracized by their own countrymen, the Jewish people. And so they were facing conflict on all sides, really. And then in the midst of it all, the the church in Jerusalem had faced persecution. We read about it in Acts chapter 8. And most likely that is what scattered them beyond Palestine. And so when James picks up his pen in around 49 AD to write a letter, he says to the scattered tribes of Israel, to the scattered church, He's talking about these people that have faced persecution, that have, been, have left Jerusalem and now are having a tough time. He writes to encourage them through the many trials that they're suffering. I've called this series The Warnings to the Wise, and because James resembles the wisdom literature that we look at in the Old Testament, especially Proverbs, it's very prescriptive than it is descriptive. And uh, whereas Paul, when you read his letters, he, he lays this clear foundation of theology and then he builds on top of it. James doesn't take the time to do that. James just jumps in to all the imperatives. James just jumps into the wisdom that we need to receive. And the, one of the first things that we see in the letter of James is that if you're going to receive from God the imperatives that are coming through his word, then you need wisdom. You need wisdom. And uh, I said last week that in verse 2 where we see in the scriptures this title, these titles that are heading up different passages of scripture, these are put in, of course, after the time of the autographs being written. And so we must not put too much stock in them. And I suggested last week that when verse 2 is headed up with the title Trials and Temptations, that though the passage talks about that, we must not think that that's the big idea in the scripture. That likely, I think, it's talking more about the big idea being get wisdom. We quoted Proverbs last week in that same venue. And so, Paul, or James, when he gets to the point, then he says that trials produce the testing of our faith, which develops perseverance, that word hupomone, standing under that which God puts on you. And then as that perseverance keeps on going, it builds and it tests faith, and it builds character. And so James then goes on to verse 5 and says, So therefore, if you're lacking wisdom, ask of God, because that's the key ingredient to be receiving what God is sending you, even and especially if what God is sending you comes in the form of a trial. It takes wisdom to receive from God. Wisdom is like the the descrambler. Wisdom is like the receptor. That if you do not have it, all kinds of lessons that God sends your way in life are going to bypass you. You're going to miss out, James is saying. So if you if you are lacking wisdom, ask of God. There's one thing God loves to give all the time, and that's wisdom. And are you ready to pay the price to get it? 
And so this is the message that we began with last week. And, and the fact is that we, we often don't understand why it is that wisdom has to be taught to us in such a difficult way. I read a story some time ago about a farmer who owned a horse. I'm not talking about Eric Bergman this morning. <laughs> who, praise the Lord, is on the mend. I talked to Lorraine a couple of days ago. So there's a farmer who owned a horse, and the horse uh, ran away one day. So his friends gathered at his home and said, Oh, it's too bad. I'm so sorry. And he said, Well, who knows if it's too bad? Maybe it's not too bad. Maybe it's good. And sure enough, uh, several days later, the horse returns with 20 other wild horses. So his friends gather at his home and says, oh, isn't that good? How good that is. And he said, well, I'm not sure. Is it good? Maybe it's not good. Maybe it's bad. And so then uh, a few days later, his son is riding the horse. One of the wild horses gets thrown off it, like Eric did, didn't get fallen off. He's thrown off the horse and, uh, and uh, he, he breaks his leg and his neighbors gather. And he says, oh, isn't that too bad? And, and the farmer says, well, I don't know. Is it good or is it bad? You know? And then, and then uh, there's a draft, there's a war coming. And so all of the uh, young men that are able-bodied have to go to, to, to war. And because of this young man's broken leg, he doesn't get conscripted. And so his neighbors come over and say, oh, that was good, wasn't it? And the farmer says, of course, well, who knows if it's good or if it's bad. You know, the story could go on all morning probably. And what's the point of the story? Well, the point of the story is that we're short-sighted, aren't we? The point of the story is we only see what we see. We don't see what God sees. And that's the point that James is trying to say is if you're going to see what God sees and receive what God's ready to give, you need wisdom. You need wisdom. One author I read said it's like a, a dog's understanding of his master's ways. And many times when I'm in the backyard cutting grass and I think about our golden retriever, Charlie, and I think, he has no clue what I'm doing. He's just, I'm pushing around this box with wheels, and it's making noise, and he's making him afraid. That's, he does. And when I take him to the vet to get a needle once a year, he, he, has no re, he has no idea what's going on with that. That's kind of like us with God's ways, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're like that, although God does invite us into some more of his understanding sometimes. When the scriptures address the matters of our trials that we face, the sufferings we endure, the, the pain that we have in our lives as opposed to the pleasure, um, it faces the subject head on, unlike much of the world that James wrote into did. The Greeks that was very influential, the Greek philosophies that were very influential during the time of James, did not really face pain and suffering Head on. In fact, the, the ones that, that we see about, Socrates and Plato, a couple hundred years before Jesus, they lived and they wrote, and they had a very profound influence upon the thinking of the time of James writing or Jesus living on this earth. And actually, if, if you were to ask them, why do bad things happen or why do we suffer, they would actually have said, especially Socrates, they would have said, well, actually, they don't happen. They don't really happen. Because in the Greek mindset, there's a dualism between soul and body. And nothing bad can happen to your soul, your real self. And so therefore, it just happens to this body. And that was their way of explaining away suffering. The Buddha, who lived even before 
the time of Socrates and Plato, around the 5th century B.C. in Nepal. And the Buddha also had this way of side-skirting suffering, not facing it head-on. That to escape suffering and to end its cause, we must understand the, the cause of it and then and get at the root of it. And, and Buddha believed that the cause of suffering, all suffering, was just egotism or selfish desire. If we could just eliminate all selfish desire, then, then we would eliminate suffering. We do it, he, he taught, through this idea of seeing it as an illusion, transforming our consciousness through meditation, mantras, and getting into this transcendent state called nirvana. And therefore, of course, you could, through that, he said, transcend your sufferings. So you can see that by the time James picks up his pen to write about trials and sufferings that come our way, there is already a world around him that is trying to either deny that there is suffering or explain it away or say that somehow we can transcend it. And James comes along and the New Testament writers come along and in no way do they try to suggest that we can, de we can uh, deny it or transcend it. Jesus said, uh, in me you can have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, the Bible, does not deny suffering or suggest that we can avoid it in our own strength. It faces pain and suffering head on. And it says three teachings about suffering that are absolutely essential for us to get. These aren't just coming from James. This is from all of the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures that we have, Old and New Testament. The three things that are over and over again taught in scripture about our sufferings is that, number one, Christ is with us in our sufferings. Number two, his peace is for us. In our sufferings. And number three, God the Father is fulfilling a purpose through us in our sufferings. Those are three lessons that I think are universal in Scripture when it comes to addressing suffering head on. Not deny. It hurts. It's not easy. And God never said it would be. Would you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1 and... Just for a moment, let's take a peek at what James does to develop this theme that, that all of us can relate to because all of us have faced trials of many kinds. And I'd ask you to stand with me and join in listening to God's Word, James chapter 1. And we're going to just look at one verse for the sake of time. James chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Robert Burns is called the most famous beloved Scottish poet there ever was. He lived about 200 years ago. And uh, before he died, he wrote a poem that is called In the Prospect of Death. And this is what the poem says. O thou unknown almighty cause of all my hope and fear, in whose dread presence ere an hour perhaps I must appear. If I have wandered in those paths of life I ought to shun, as something loudly in my breast remonstrates I have done, 
Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. Where human weakness has come short or frailty stepped aside, do thou all good, for such thou art, and shades of darkness hide. Where with intention I have erred, no other plea I have, but thou art good, and goodness still delighteth to forgive. Now, as I read commentaries about that poem, it's very interesting that some have written about this poem, and they have said that they've interpreted Burns as blaming God for the wild and unruly passions that have bewitched him and led him into sin and have harassed his life and led him wrongly. Whereas others that have read Burns have said in their de- his defense, no, that he is actually facing temptations and lusts and counting on God to be his strength and in the end to be merciful at the end of it all. Now, I'm not going to judge Burns right now, but I am going to say to you, this is the interesting question that James poses and answers in James chapter 1. There it is in bold black and white. The dilemma that we are faced with, that God, who made us as we are, should bear some responsibility for what we become and what we make of ourselves. It is a weighty, weighty conversation that James has in chapter 1. As he opens up his book, and and the critics of theology would argue that if, as Reformed doctrine teaches, God is sovereign and all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing, and if he has created us in his image, yet with the propensity to sin and having sinful enticements, then he is to blame, to some degree, when we underperform as sanctified humans in the image of Jesus Christ. You get the logic? You understand the argument? That's the question. That's the dilemma. That's where a lot of people run to. Got to blame God somehow. You can't have it both ways, they say to Christians. You can't have this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God that's all good and then have somehow He has no responsibility for all the messed up stuff in our lives. Can't have it both ways. James says, oh yes, you can. James, in fact, argues completely contrary to this logic. James presents his arguments. And I'd like to unpack this argument in three words that we'll use this morning to do so. Number one is the word process. Two is the word proof. And three is the word provision. So let's take a look, first of all, at the process. And it's a process of persevering under trial. If you have your Bibles open, you'll notice in verse 2, James writes that we should consider it pure joy. Whenever we face trials of many kinds, the word translated in that passage, face, is actually the word fall. Whenever you fall into trials of many kinds. The word is peripipto, and the peri of the peripipto is where we get our word perimeter which goes around Winnipeg, right? The peri is this idea that all around you, Christians, James says, there are things you could fall into. 
You're going to fall, Christian, and they're all around you. Consider it pure joy when you fall into trials of many kinds, varied kinds, colorful kinds, all kinds of trials. They're all around you. You can't avoid them. When I studied this word this week, I thought about a time when we went to a place in Bolivia called Toro Toro. And in Toro Toro, there are, there are kilometers of caves uh, in, in the ground. And we went on a tour with this 15-year-old boy we entrusted our lives with. A kilometer inside a mountain with a little flashlight. In the middle of it, I thought, what are we doing? What have I just done with my family? But anyway, in the, in the middle of these caves, there are, if you, each of us had a flashlight, and if you, every once in a while, I just kind of look around, and there were deep crevices, or there were high things happening around you. Sometimes you'd actually have to get in the ladder and go down somewhere or up somewhere, or sometimes you actually, one time we had to crawl on our bellies to get through into the next section of the cave where we'd walk further. And that, that's the way I thought about it as I think about this world where James is saying, consider pure joy because you're facing, you're going to face trials and you're going to fall into trials of many kinds. There's, there's no way of avoiding them in this life. Even if you are living right, not everything is going to go right. You need to get that. In verses 2 to 4, James teaches that God has designed life so that the trials that befall you are designed by Him to test your faith. And that through your perseverance, you're going to actually get to maturity. And that's all part of God's purposes and plan. And so he he says in verse 12, the verse we read, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. So God gives you trials for you to persevere through, not to stumble, not to make you trip up, not for bad purposes ever, never harmful. He's always trying to encourage your faith. Another way of describing this is to say that the Lord is in charge of your sanctification. You becoming more holy, more like His Son Jesus. Holy, wise, loving, mature. If you never had a hard day in your life, If you always got your way, if you never suffered or faced a trial, you would have no clue how strong your faith in God was. In fact, I'll go even further. I'll say you you would have no clue if you even had faith in God. You wouldn't have a clue if you really trusted God if everything in about your life went absolutely rosy. You'd have no clue how strong your faith would be. If we were allowed to go through life without any suffering, if we always got our way about family, health, job, friendship, money, pleasure, whatever it may be, we would resemble the little rotten, spoiled child that we see in the supermarket pulling a temper tantrum if he didn't get his way. And who do we blame for those situations? You've been there, haven't you? So what kind of a father that's so loving would allow that to happen? No, he brings trials along, disciplines that are not because we've done something necessarily wrong. It's part of life, James is teaching. Now the people that James is writing to, as I said earlier, are Jewish Christians that had been scattered from the church in Jerusalem. And, and the, the trials that they are asked to endure that have befallen them, that they need to persevere through, have really been... a, a 
a displacement kind of scenario. They, they were literally uprooted, had to flee their homes. They probably left most of their goods behind and loved ones. And then they find themselves in a far-off land, and they're Jewish, so they're criticized by Gentiles, and they're Christians, so they don't even get support from Jewish countrymen, and they're facing trials of many kinds. And it's interesting, in verse 9, you'll notice in James 1, that he enters into the subject of economics. And, And partly, perhaps, because these people were made poor overnight. And so James, like all of us, needs some times. James gives them a spiritual, eternal perspective of the material, temporal things. He says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, and the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even when he goes about his business. James is teaching a vital lesson here that for all of us who live in a materialistic society driven by the engine of consumerism, that without wanting to, I mean this, without wanting to, we make judgments upon other people based on economics. Without wanting to. James corrects the jaded perspective that wealth can bring. And, and I want you to know the word pride in your NIV is not in the text, in the Greek text. But, it, but the authors, the, the translators, I should say, are trying to convey the idea of the text. And so if I could just give you kind of a wooden translation, it would sound something like this. Rejoice, you low brothers, meaning poor, Rejoice, you low brothers, he says, for you are exalted. And you who are rich, lower yourself. Lower yourself. Because like a wild flower, you also will pass away. Very interesting wisdom that James is passing on to this group of people that are facing trials. James is saying that if God places you in a position of poverty compared to other people around you, because that's what poverty means, really. If if you wanted to, to really go global, all of us in this room are filthy rich. Okay, so, so if God places you in a position of poverty compared to somebody else that lives in your neighborhood... If he ever takes away your means of making money, if he deprives you of your wealth, it is always and only to bless you spiritually and remind you of eternal riches that are infinitely greater than anything material you could ever lay your hands on. He says in verse 11, the sun rises and scorches the plants and in the same way, every rich person and all of his wealth is going to fade away. In our family room at home, we have uh, some paintings by a Bolivian artist named uh, Eusebio Choque. And uh, he is famous for painting indigenous people uh, from the Andes. And he never paints a face. <clears throat> he only paints their aguayo and their hats or toques or their chompas and so on. And uh, it's called the faceless poor. And for me, it's kind of haunting. All these, these, these images, which when you come to the face, is just black. 
Just dark background like the background of the painting. And it's haunting, but it's somehow reminding of me to me of, of the fact that somehow we, we need to understand that, that economics is, is no way of judging. That, that we, we, like that person's face, are just going to fade away one day. God does not respect economics. He does not judge based on economics. The rich and poor will fade away. And so if your trial, as the ones that perhaps James is writing to, is of economic nature, God says, don't worry. If you had food and clothing and these things, you should be content. Not easy to receive, I understand, if you're living in wealth around you. The second thing I want to share is that the proof of being approved under God is, is what comes about through the process of persevering. Verse 12, James writes, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. Verse 2, the same word is used, the testing of your faith. The word testing is dokimos. And dokimos is a, is a word that means to be approved. It is frequently used by archaeologists. They, they find this word on on vessels of pottery that are unearthed in archaeological digs. And they'll find the word dokimos. It's like the ancients had, just like we have in different industries, a seal of approval. CSA approved. And, and the ancients in their pottery had a seal, and it was either stamped dokimos or adokimos, which was not approved. And so the archaeologists actually find these seals. Now, what was the seal of approval? What was it based on? Well, every pot, in order for it to be tested, had to go through the fire. It went into the ovens. And it came out of the ovens, either cracked, a dokimos, or it would be approved, dokimos. And that's the way we still see archaeologists finding pottery. And so James is using this. And he is saying that uh, that's what's happening to us. We're going through the fire. It has to happen for us to be approved. Our, our faith has to be tested to see what kind of faith it is, if we have even have a faith. And so every one of us will face trials. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 1.7. He says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. You've suffered grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. So that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven, tested, dokimos, may be tested, genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Paul uses this word in 2 Timothy 2.15. He says, do your best to present yourself as one approved, tested. Dokimos, as approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. And so Paul is, or James is teaching that the process of the approval is this testing through various trials. Perseverance is needed, that upomone. Once you've stood the test, you'll grow in your maturity, you'll grow in your wisdom. And if you keep on doing that, ultimately, God says you'll have the crown of life. You'll have the crown of life. But James anticipates that you're going to have trouble with this logic. And so James, in his argumentation, in verse, beginning in verse uh, 13, uh, anticipates the questions, the objections that his readers will have, and he poses 
some concerns in verse 13. Take a look. Verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. Here, James is, is addressing the matter that some blamed Robert Burns of doing, blaming God, right? He's addressing the matter head on about temptations. Let's make a few observations. First of all, I want you to know that the word for trial in verse 2 and 12 is the same root word for temptations in verses 13 and 14. And the only difference is that the one is the noun and the other is the verb. One refers to the outward circumstance of trials. The other refers to the inward tempting of being enticed inwardly. Now stay with me on this. Perhaps it, it's helpful to think of it this way. So we don't blame God for things that God is not responsible for. It's helpful to think of it that a trial is an experience that God brings into our lives to help us grow. That's only his design. He's all good. He could never do bad. But a temptation is what Satan brings into our lives to cause us to sin. And Job is a classic example of this. When we see clearly that Satan devised something to bring Job down, yet God in his mercy allowed so much of permission in order to test Job's faith in order that he would go through this trial, but God allowed Satan to go just so far and no farther. And in the end, he vindicated Job. And the circumstances that Satan designed for bad, God used for good. Notice in verse 13, James uses the word when tempted. Again, it's kind of like in verse 2, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's not a matter of if. You will be tempted, just like you will face trials. What is true of trials that come our way is also true of temptations that come our way. They're inevitable. You will never arrive at a place in your faith or maturity where you will be beyond the reach of temptation. They will arrive at you wherever and whatever circumstances you'll be in. They will harass you if you're alone or if you're with people. You'll be battling temptation if you live in a Christian family or if you're from a non-Christian family. If you have are among Christian friends or non-Christian friends, if you go to a Christian school or a non-Christian school, if you're in a church or outside of the church, it doesn't matter where you go, what you do, temptation will follow you. You can run, but you cannot hide. That's the James message here. They can be sensual temptations of enjoying the lusts of the body and the appetites and desires. They can be abstract like power and prestige and popularity or fame. They can be very material, such as money and the things that money can buy. And not everybody's temptations are the same. One of the lessons that James teaches is that that sometimes temptations will actually arise out of the trial that God is sending your way. And so God intends this trial for you to persevere through and to grow your faith in, to make you wise. And then Satan comes along and uses it for bad because you've maybe not persevered. And so on. Now, in case someone thinks that there's double talk going on here, that Satan is being blamed for tempting, and yet we're being blamed too because it comes from your own evil desires within you, 
I think it's important to understand that the, the both of them are true, that that Satan tempts, and so does the fact that the the, the, the temptation, the evil, the sin is already within us. I was reading recently a book, a uh, long time ago got this book, John White, The Fight. And uh, he describes the, the idea this way. And uh, Terrence, I didn't, I didn't give you a heads up on this, but um, he describes it like it's like going to a piano. And I'm going to just go to this piano and I'm going to hold down the sustain, okay, the sustain pedal. And I'm going to hum a note. I'm not going to touch any of the keys or the strings. I'm going to hum a note. I want you to... Oh, I want to hear... I want to see if you can hear anything. Okay, here we go. Ah! If I had taken a mic up to that, you'd have heard. The strings kept on vibrating. And John White says that Satan calls. Lust! And something in you vibrates. Right? He calls out, Envy! And something in you vibrates. That's what, that's what John White is saying. He said that that's what happens, is that, that the sin is already in you. It's an enticement that exists within you. And all that Satan or the world have to do is just present the opportunity. To make the call. And, and, and unknown to you, something vibrates within you that's contrary to the will of God. And you don't want to do it. But you end up doing like Romans 7 speaks of. And so temptation, you see, is an inside job. Temptation is an inside job. The word for enticed in verse 14 is to lure by bait. Temptation and fishing are very related Rarely does some temptation look like temptation. You don't take a, a bare hook and stick it in the water, usually, when you're trying to fish. And neither does Satan. He doesn't put a bare hook in. He doesn't put down the hook ahead of us, the allurement, and say, guess what? Bite on that sucker, and you're going to have all kinds of trouble in your life. No, it usually comes in the form of some lust, some attractive thing. And, and so that's where he trips us up. And in the end, James is saying in this passage, you cannot blame God. You cannot blame the devil for your sin. It exists within you. You cannot blame God if you've given in to the temptation. He never designed the trial to be that. You cannot blame the trial. You cannot blame the people around you that didn't help you or influence you better. You cannot blame your circumstances. In the end, if you're tempted and you give in to those temptations and you allow yourself to go and be enticed, James says you are to blame. Somehow that's very important to understand in an age when everybody is looking to get off the hook for things. Now I need to end here, but the final P word is provision. The last portion of the scripture, verses 16 to 18. James says, don't be deceived, my brothers. Don't be deceived. And I don't fully understand the words that he shares in verses 16 to 18. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I can't understand fully what his argumentation is, but I know that James is ending this section without wanting to beat up on the reader. It's your fault kind of 
He wants to end it by saying somehow there's provision available. He's, he's pointing us to the character of God. You need to see that. He's pointing us to the character of God. God who is unchanging. God who is graciously benevolent. Loves to give good gifts to His children. That's who God is. He's a good God. And through your spiritual birth, He's adopted you into His family. And He is so committed to you, to your sanctification, to your maturity, to your gaining of wisdom, that He sends these trials along in order that you might persevere and that your faith will be tested and you'll end up growing stronger. And sometimes He has to send the same trial over and over again because we're not doing so well in overcoming it. We fall into temptation. We take a sidestep. And God is so committed to you as as your heavenly Father. Father, that he's going to lead you to that maturity, that wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Would you stand with me right now as we conclude our service? And I apologize for taking us longer. But before we just run out these doors and maybe forget some of what we've looked at into the Word. What has the Holy Spirit been saying to you this morning about trials, about temptations, about the place that God is in the middle of them in your life? What is it that He wants to say to you? And I want to pray for you this day as we think on that. Let's pray right now. Gracious Father, our God, we we give You praise that You are the One who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, if it were left to us in our puny strength to be sanctified, to become like Jesus, we would be lost. We have no power except Your power. Oh God, Holy Spirit, live within us. Exert Your strength. Show Your grace and power in our lives to rescue fallen humanity to make our lives into trophies of grace and to show the world around us that you're a redeeming God and that you're worthy of following. Oh Lord, we ask you, I ask you Lord that whatever symptom, whatever issue, whatever concern weighs heavy on the hearts of these people standing today that Lord you might be the one who comes alongside of them, strengthens them with your comfort, reminds them of your presence, gives them your peace, and shows them that you're fulfilling great and eternal purposes through even the difficult trials that they're facing. And that, Lord, that when we fall into temptation, that, Lord, you, you have the grace to deliver us from all evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. People of God, go in peace.